passage is John 1, 9 through 13. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible Version. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving your word down through the ages so that even today we can read it and recognize what a great love you have for us. Thank you for the ability we have to be reconciled with you because of your great love. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here this morning to worship you in freedom and in peace. Be merciful, O God, to our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have this same privilege, who are worshiping you under duress uh, and don't have the same freedoms. Preserve them. We, We cry out to you, Lord, preserve them. We do remember our CCC team who are in Mexico this week, and we ask that you do protect them. Uh, May they have a blessed time of sweet fellowship with each other and with the people they meet. And may they bring your light to those who don't know you. Father, we ask that you bless Pastor Daniel this morning as he brings the message. May we love you more as we hear the words you have placed in his mouth and on his heart to share with us. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jace. Well, you are welcome to be seated. My name is Daniel. I am... Uh, one of the pastors here, the realm that I usually take uh, responsibility for is worship and prayer, but this morning it is my joy to get to preach, and uh, I appreciate you guys braving the winter squall on our, this first day of spring to, to be here. Um, we're going to continue on this morning in the series that we're in titled, We Are His Workmanship. And in the sermon this morning, I'm going to be springboarding off a lot of the ideas from previous sermons. And last week, we discussed that we are all members of one another, that Pastor Patrick pointed out our unique gifts and talents don't exist for us simply for our own self-fulfillment. Rather, they are uh, necessary components of a healthy and functioning church. And this local church, I'm certain you remember, Pastor Ryan pointing out, is the immediate manifestation of the universal and the eternal church. This is where we see that. And the local church is where the kingdom of God should be most tangibly experienced on earth because, as Pastor Jeff pointed out a few weeks ago, we are the temple of God. And before we move on into my sermon, do you approach Sunday morning this way? Do you come to the gathering? Do you come to the ecclesia, the group of the redeemed saints, with the expectation that the Lord is going to fill his temple? If the Old Testament Shekinah glory of God were to manifest on stage every Sunday, would you approach the gathering with a different attitude or expectation? Because what do you think it means that we are his temple except that his presence comes and fills this place? And so I want to encourage you, do you go to bed on Saturday evening and wake up on Sunday morning preparing your heart to be confronted 
by a living God? Or do we just kind of fall into the pattern of ritual? God works through ritual and the mundane. I'm not trying to dunk on that. But do we come with the expectation that we are the temple of the living God? And so as we dive into what it means that we are the family of God this morning, I want us to approach God, God's word, not as a mere collection of symbols gathered on the page that, that represent meaning, but I want us to approach it as if God's voice itself is speaking to you. I'm not God's voice, God's word is, but I want us to approach with that attitude of being confronted by the word of the living God. So hear now the words of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 says, Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and separate yourselves, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we come to you and we confess that frequently we don't approach we don't approach with a, an attitude of, of expectation that we will be met by the spirit of the living God. Mornings like this though where the, the power of nature is put on display remind us of, of your power and your might. Lord, and so we ask that now through the, the preaching of your word, that your, your power and your might would be put on display. Lord, and help us to understand what it means to be your family. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, so as with all good stories, we need to start at the very beginning. Our first point this morning is that God's intention for humanity from the start is worked out in and through family. So as we, look, as we look what it means to be the family of God, we need to understand God's intention for humanity from the start is worked out in and through family. And I'm going to piggyback on Pastor Jeff's sermon from a week ago here. Do you remember his description of the earth as being the cosmic temple, right? The eternal, om omniscient, almighty God of the universe flings the cosmos into existence. He speaks and light comes into existence. He speaks and the, and the galaxies are, are flung far and wide. And in the midst of this incredible universe, he creates a temple, this earth. And in this temple, on this temple, he creates a holy of holies, a garden. And in this garden, what does he place? He places his image, his idol, in the midst of this garden. But this idol is not like idols you and I could invent, right? They're not stone or wood or, or silicone and AI. It's flesh and blood and consciousness and soul. And it's not just a singular thing either. It's not like a cow or a duck. It's this 
binary thing. It's this symbiotic idol. It says in Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So he places this idol in the middle of this garden and then he blesses them and commissions them. He gives them a purpose to go fill the earth, go fill the temple with his image bearers to go expand the holy of holies across the entire temple. But how does he bless them to accomplish that? In chapter two of Genesis, it makes it evident that marriage and the family is the route for them to take to accomplish this purpose. It's through family, through the coming together of these two to procreate more little image bearers. Now, I know that some of the single people out in the crowd right now are thinking, great, another sermon that makes me feel (laughs) like I'm a less than participant in the body of Christ. I promise you that's not true, and, and we'll show that in a little bit. But in general, the plan for humans to rule over the earth, the plan is for humans to rule over the earth in the context of family, to be fruitful and multiply, and in so doing, fill the earth and subdue it. And these two that they're talking about are Adam and Eve, our parents. They are our, the, the, the progenerators of our race. And if we are not the fruit of their union, then we are not in the image of God. If we are not the fruit of their union, God's command to be fruitful and multiply does not apply to us. If we're not the fruit of their union, Adam's fall doesn't apply to us. And nor does the redemption found in Christ. But scripture makes it plain from start to finish that we are their offspring. So single folks, people will try to make you bitter that there's all this focus focus on marriage and family and not on you and your state of life. But listen, you are the fruit of this marriage as much as married, married couples are. You are just as much a part of this earth-subduing, temple-expanding purpose as married couples. We need you in the church. But God working out his promises in and through family doesn't just stop in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, the proto-gospel, which is, is found in the, in the promised offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the, that's the first echo of the, of the gospel that we know, right? <clears throat> so why are there so many? You get through Genesis 3 and 4, and then what happens? You jump into all of these genealogies, right? It's where everybody's reading plan gets, gets disrupted. You, got, you like the story through Genesis 1 through 4, and then it's, and this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat that guy, and this guy had these many, right? But what's happening there? The New Testament reveals that they are tracking that promised offspring through the lineages of family. And when God begins to expound on this promised redemption, when he starts to to, to fill in the blanks a little bit, he, he starts with a man named Abram, and he does it again in the context of family. Right before God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham, right, Look what he says in Genesis 15. Abraham's complaining. Hey, I have no heir. Some servant, some random servant in my household is gonna be the heir of my stuff. And this is what the Lord says to him. It says, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. 
Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then he goes on to confirm this covenant. But God has made extravagant promises to Abraham. Extravagant promises like the whole earth will be blessed through you. And it looks like those promises will be fulfilled in the context of an ever-expanding family. And we know that this promised blessing is ultimately found in Christ. But still, that promised Messiah is tracked through family. We see the, the lineages in the beginning of, of uh, Genesis, and, and then uh, a promise is given to Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, that the scepter will, never, de- will, will uh, never depart from his tribe, and that one will come to, to, to wield it. And we see that fulfilled in King David, right? The, the, the just king in comparison to the unjust king, Saul. The just king, David, is from the, the lion of Judah. But then what, does, what promise does God give David? He promises David that his kingly lineage will be established on the throne of Israel forever. And we see that promise fulfilled by Christ, who was of the house of David, and who has been made king forever. And in the New Testament, we are no less confronted by this family language and concepts, but in the New Testament, it's broadened out to include not just Abraham's family, but all the families of the earth, the Gentiles. In fact, in the Second Corinthians passage I read, there's almost an interchangeability between the concept of being a holy temple and being the family of God. Paul instructs us in that passage, he says, listen, we're not to be wedded to darkness. We're not to, we're not to make family with darkness. Right? We're not to fill the household of God with false idols. We're to fill the household of God with the image bearers of God. Why? Because we're the temple of God in which God dwells and through which he walks. We are his people. We are his sons and his daughters, and he is our father. And many of the same images are used in Ephesians 2, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but the project of filling the earth with his image, expanding that holy of holies across the surface of the entire cosmic temple, is affirmed throughout the New Testament. Revelation 19, think about this. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is a giant party celebrating the formation of the final family. And what happens after that? The New Jerusalem descends. What is not in the New Jerusalem? A temple. There is no temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because God is in the midst of his people. God is in the midst of his family, which is the temple. And until just recently, the last 200 years or so, there has been an understanding that the primary building block of civilizations and cultures, the tool that God primarily uses in working out the redemptive plan, is family. That was not, that, that was not a controversial claim until about 200 years ago. 
Everyone saw it. So much so that societies wanted to be involved in establishing and approving marriages because they knew how potent they were for creating culture. It's why matchmakers were a thing, right? We love that song, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, right? But it's why you still have to have a marriage license today. But in the last 200 years, there has been an intentional assault on the family. They've been attempting to supplant its priority and its primacy in the formation of society, particularly as it pertains to the creation of and the development of children. And there are those who adhere to a particular 19th century political and economic philosophy who would actually desire to see the outright abolition of the family as a function of an egalitarian society. Now, as noble as that desire may be, and I don't find it very noble, they are not operating within the, the, the realm of human reality. Because of our second point, you can't get rid of the family because you are a member of a family whether you like it or not. And some of you may laugh because you definitely don't like the family that you are a member of. But you are a member no matter how disinclined you, you are to, to, to claim that. And here it's helpful to, to identify, to define what constitutes a family. If I were to pass out a piece of paper and a pencil to every single person in here and say, hey, you have 30 seconds to draw me a picture of a family, I can guarantee you what 95% of your drawings would look like, right? Father, mother, a couple of kids, and if you had time, a dog or cat, right? That's what, that's what you envision. Because here in the West, we're individualists, right? And that influences how we perceive the concept of family. It's as part of our individualism, we gravitate towards the most atomized uh, definition of family, the elemental or the nuclear family. It's reinforced in the way that in the, it's reinforced in the media, the, the way that we see stuff, and even the cultural attempts to redefine family, right, are really just focused on redefining the nuclear family. So instead of mother, father, children, father, father, children, or mother, mother, children, or single parent children, right? <clears throat> and, but we let this definition influence our reading of Scripture, it's just the water that we swim in, and, and here's how I'll prove it. Think about Mary and Joseph. When you think about Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, what do you think of? A lonely couple, wife's on a donkey, walking a dark road all alone to Bethlehem, finding no room at the inn, finally having to find a little quiet place tucked away in this barn with the lowing animals, right? We have this picture of it's that atomized nuclear family. In Ethiopia... They imagine all of Mary's female siblings or female uh, family members with them because in, in certain tribes in Ethiopia, when a woman is pregnant, a month before she gives birth, all of the female members of her extended family come to live with her, right? Their Christmas pageants look far different than ours do. <laughs> and that narrow definition can be really helpful in certain instances. We'll talk about that in a second, but... It's foreign, it's quite foreign to the Jewish and Hellenistic culture's vision 
of family in the first century. You see, an understanding of family in this time included the nuclear family for sure, but it also included your extended family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, nieces and nephews, and your ancestors. Your status and place in society was determined by who your family was and what they had done in the past. So where we can easily write someone in our extended family off to preserve our reputation, in the first century, your eccentric uncle, who's out watering his tulips and his best tidy whities tinfoil hat and bow tie, right? That would become part of your family's reputation in the community. And so rather than being narrowly focused, it had an expansive definition with a collective focus. So when we say that God's purpose for humanity are worked out in and through family um, and that you belong to a family, we are actually talking about both of these views. It's pretty clear in Scripture that one of the spheres of authority is the immediate family. For example, fathers. Fathers are given the responsibility for which they will stand before the Lord and give an account for the just and loving care of their children and to raise them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers are given that responsibility. It's not the state's job. It's not the church's job. It's not anyone else's job. Fathers, the education of your children is your responsibility. Now, you can outsource it to trustworthy professionals or partner with other people to, to provide for it, but you can never abdicate your accountability for it. The sovereignty and the accountability of the immediate family is absolutely biblical. But so is the larger collective family. And you can't just wish away or socially engineer away either of these two concepts. Nor can you exempt yourself from the inheritance of your family. Those of you who have genetic markers for disease passed down from your parents know that belonging to a family is an inescapable fact. Those of you who have suffered abuse at the hands of a family know that the effects of it are what they are precisely because it was a family member. Those of you like Timothy who received a robust spiritual upbringing because of godly parents and grandparents know that they wrote something into your spiritual DNA through prayer and instruction. You can't escape it. And from a 30,000 foot view in scripture, the scriptures categorize people into membership in one of two families. Look at what Ephesians, well, it's the family of God and the family of not God, right? Look what Ephesians 2 says, 1 through 3. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to who? The ruler of the power of the air. You used to walk in obedience to the God of this world, which is the devil, According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, 
as the others were also. The world loves to tell us that we are all the children of God. But the biblical reality is, in an unregenerate state, we are all sons and daughters of Adam, not of God. We walk in the way of the ruler of the power of the air. Romans 5 makes it clear that in our natural state, though made in the image of God, we are not the inheritors of life and God's affection. We are the inheritors of death and his wrath. Just because you were born into church or into a Christian family doesn't exempt you from this either. One of the stories I find most compelling in the Gospels comes from John chapter 8. Jesus has made some radical claims about himself, right? He's claimed to be the light of the world. He is turning uh, Jerusalem on its head. And so he's being interrogated and frankly insulted by the Pharisees, right? And what they are doing in this interrogation is they are lean to justify themselves. They are leaning in to their cultural and genetic heritage, they justify their claims by saying, we are the sons of Abraham. We are the sons of the promises that were given to him. We're the, the sons of, you know, the, of the law and everything that came out of this, right? And Jesus, and, and in a way that's true, genetically and culturally, that, that's true. But Jesus flips that on its head, embarrasses them a little bit. So they counter by uh, Jesus' claim that God is his father by claiming, no, 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 you are the product of sexual immorality, and we are the sons of God. They say God is our Father. And look what Jesus responds. He says to them, if God were your Father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own. God sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet I, because I tell you the truth, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So whose nature do you have? Their claim to be the children of God actually proves that they are sons of the devil. Because that self-affirmation, in that self-affirmation, they reject the true son of God. Hear me, please. Be offended if you must, but be offended by God's word. Any claim to being a child of God that bypasses the embrace of Christ as the unique son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, any claim to being a child of God that bypasses the embrace of that Jesus is from the devil, That does not mean that people aren't fundamentally made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and care. After all, God's redemptive work is undertaken 
for them and offered to them. But apart from Christ, they are children of wrath. Because of our point number three, God's family is established in Christ. God's family is only established in Christ. Look at what the Ephesians 2 says later on. Starting in verse 12, it says, at that time when you were a child of wrath, you were without Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant and promises. You were exiles from the garden. You were outside the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> you were without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and to you who were near. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are no longer exiles, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are family members of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being put together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. Again, there is the family temple language we've been talking about. And as Pastor Ryan shared a month ago in his sermon, We Are His Assembly, God has always been in the business of drawing a people to himself. But his desire for that gathering, his desire for gathering that people, is not just to have a throng of people. His desire is that they would be a family and that they would be his family. Belonging to this family is not rooted in the nature of our being. It's not rooted in our genetic line or any of our cultural markers because Romans makes it clear that not all who are born into the, the nation of Israel were actually of spiritual Israel. Romans 1 and 2 makes it plain that those who have the law and all of its cultural markings will be excluded <laughs> alongside all those people who don't. Because it's a spiritual family by adoption, not a genetic or cultural or ontological one. It's only those who are in Christ by grace through faith. Listen to the words of Romans 8, starting in verse 14. This is after the first seven chapters have been sent, set up to establish that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. This is what Paul says. For all those who are led by the Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. When you, when you came to faith, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And that Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are the children of God. And embracing Christ is the linchpin to belonging to the family of God. Not marriage or ritual, heritage or nature, no works, no application, adoption in Christ alone. Christ is the new Adam, 
and our family belonging is in and through his work and righteousness. We are in him. And this new spiritual family actually, this is a hard one, actually supplants and supersedes our earthly family, which leads us to point four. God's family is truer than our genetic family. God's family is more our family than our own genetic family. And this is a tough concept for us to really embrace. First is our context. We, many of our friends and our neighbors, we live in a context where due to their institutional beliefs, they value traditional family to such a degree that their evangelism is centered around the joy of translating earthly family into eternal family. Additionally, many of us grew up with our own thought of that blood is thicker than water. How many of you were, were raised with that attitude that there's no bond higher than that of your genetic lineage and anything that calls you away from that is probably a cult. And to compound it, as the assault on the family has grown, which it has, so too has the doubling down on the family's unique importance in response to the point that we can sometimes enshrine it as something more than what it is. And we must be wary of this because Jesus tells us in Matthew that marriage is a temporary, marriage, the, the way that we see it is a temporary earthly institution. That in the resurrection, they are neither given, they neither marry or given in marriage. This is an earthly deal. <clears throat> and after our cultural context, the second thing that makes it tough to grasp this concept that God's family is truer than our genetic family is the fact that we don't always have a very robust view of adoption. Now, this church has plenty of families who have adopted and fostered, and people give generously to, to resource those families who have done it. So please don't hear this as some kind of flat, outright rebuke for not caring about adoption. Certainly, we tend to see adoption as something noble, right? But we also tend to see it as something different than natural family, natural traditional procreation, which means we can tend to unintentionally see it as something inferior to that. Now, if pressed, none of us would actually say we believe this, right? We, like, intellectually, that's not a, that's not a position we walk around holding, but functionally, the reality is there are thousands of kids in foster care right now that testify to the fact that people do see it as something less than a natural family. And all of those things conspire to diminish our understanding of what it means to be part of the family of God. But look at the intensity with which Christ views this concept of spiritual family. In Matthew 12, starting in verse 46, he says, it says, while he was speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to see him. That's his, his, his biological family. In his, in his humanity, he had a genetic family. His mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. 
He replied to the one who was speaking to him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus sees the spiritual family, those who are doing the will of the Father, as being his true, his truest family members. They supersede his earthly family. And to be clear, the, you know, joining this family isn't a call to start doing a bunch of works and to receive and maintain membership. After all, what is the will of the Father? John 6, 29 makes it plain that the work of God, the will of God, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And as we read before, the, 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 as we read in the passage before the sermon, those who believe in him are given, listen to this word, are given the right to be children of God. Precisely because they aren't born in the fashion of a natural birth, Rather, they are born again by the will and the spirit of God. This adoption is not a lesser form of family. It is the greater form of family. Those who have been adopted here on this earth, those of you who have, who have been adopted by other families, you have a better shot at understanding this than those who were born into traditional families. You have the advantage. So think about that the next time that you, you hear or try to insult one of your siblings by telling them they're adopted. Our response to such an insult should be, absolutely I am. And Christ is unashamed to call me his brother. So why are you ashamed to? So how do we, reply, how do we apply the reality of all that we've surveyed here this morning? Well, first, the first point of application is believe on the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you are sitting in this room and the Holy Spirit is not testifying with your spirit that you are a child of God, if you have never believed in your heart or confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if Paul's words that you were a child of wrath apart from Christ shook something in you this morning, know this. God has overlooked the former times of ignorance and he calls all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. To repent is to just renounce our allegiance to our family of origin and pledge new allegiance to Christ. All it requires is that you forsake Adam's inheritance, which is just self-rule leading to death and accept the gentle yoke and light burden of Christ's lordship. So call upon the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. God's true family is waiting for more brothers and sisters to come home. The second point of application is we need to work to adopt a broader, a broader vision of family. I want you to take a moment. I want you to look around the room. If you're a visitor today, sorry, it's weird. Look around the room. Like, really, look. Everybody's head straight forward. <laughs> right? This, this is your family. 
This is your family. Many of us are transplants here, and we have been forced out of desperation to adopt people into our hearts as family members. But that is what we all should be doing. That's what we all should be doing. When we meet another believer, another one who is doing the will of the Father by believing in Christ, there should be a voice inside of us saying, behold, your mother or your brother or your sister or your niece or your nephew or your aunt or your uncle or your grandmother. So here's your challenge. Invite a family member that you have never met over to eat after service today. Or include a single family member in your own family devotions. Or let the widowed woman who lives alone be a grandmother to your kids. Now, you can't have intimate relationships with 500 people. It's just not in the bandwidth of humanity. But you can with one or two new people. And additionally, as we attempt to broaden our vision of family, we should be prayerfully considering adoption and fostering as an expression of our families. Now hear me clearly. I need you to hear this. Not everyone is called to foster and adopt. If someone tries to bind your conscience to that, you are very welcome to question it. But every Christian is called to be engaged in the care of orphans. And that means supporting those families who do have the clear calling. That means advocating for those people in the foster care system. That means praying for and giving to ministries that support orphans in adoption. But it very well may mean reexamining why you have not engaged in fostering and adopting. Now, if you go down that road, it will cost you. That's usually the thing that hangs us up. It will cost you. And I can give you the names of some folks who have sacrificed more than you can imagine to serve those little image bearers who wander the world alone and abused. They are scarred forever. But so is Christ. And he did it in order that you and I would be adopted into a family. We may not be called to it, but we cannot ignore it. And we must actively support it. Our third point of application is we need to adopt not just a broader view of family, but a deeper view of family. If we are honest on a day-to-day basis, most of us don't look at our membership and our family as much more than coincidental anomaly, right? I'm just one of millions of potential genetic outcomes from the, the pairing of my, my father and mother's chromosomes, My brother and sister are just two more out of those millions of potential outcomes, right? If my parents, if one other, one thing had gone differently, my parents never would have met, right? We we tend to kind of see it as a, hey, we just landed here by the luck of the draw. We do it with church family too. We're here at CCC because of a series of random events. We're here because we didn't really like the worship or the preaching anywhere else. Or we're here because we want this class or, or that activity or whatever. And when we stop to think about it, we certainly know that, th- that we are more than the, the sum of our component parts. 
But that's really about as far as our thinking usually goes. Yet scripture paints the picture of that family, both genetic and spiritual family, are the means by which God is covering the earth with his image. They are instruments of redemption of the world in the hands of the Redeemer. You and your brother and your sister and your spouse and your, and your kids, right? So, so do you gaze in awe at the glory of God when you're sitting around your breakfast table with your roommates or your family? Or do you just kind of, eh, this is just how things are. So we've tried to adopt this vision that, that families are redemptive instruments in the hands of the redeemed. We've tried to adopt this into our church family's mission and vision. But is it a part of your mission and vision? Is that how you, you see family and church in your mind? So we need to work to d- adopt a deeper vision of family. And finally, we need to remember that an attitude of forgiveness is vital for healthy families. Brothers and sisters, we are going to hurt one another. We're going to offend. We're going to overstep. We're going to accidentally gossip and accidentally shame. Our sharp edges are going to cut one another. The pastors and the elders of this church are going to fail and disappoint you. Some of you are saying, going to? Like, <laughs> we're going to. We already have in a thousand ways. But we need to hold to an attitude of forgiveness. That doesn't mean that accountability isn't needed. It's not a license to sin and then demand that the one you sinned against forgives you. But Colossians 3.13 makes it plain that the default setting of the Christian life is to be forgiveness, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So I'll end with this. On January 18th, 2014, right, baby? I remember my anniversary. My new nuclear family was inaugurated on the steps of a house in a fancy part of the ghetto of Oxnard, California. And we made vows to each other and we promised to forgive one another when we failed to live up to those vows. And by the grace of God, lots of hard work. We are still married. We still like each other. And God has been seen fit to bless us with only one child. Right? And we're thrilled to death with her. Do you know when our, when our spiritual family was inaugurated? 2,000 years ago, on a cross outside of Jerusalem. When the perfect son of God hung on a Roman cross and begged for and made a way for the forgiveness of the very people who hung him there. And you know how we know that it began. Because a repentant thief was given the promise that he had become that day a member of the family of God with all the rights and privileges guaranteed. If that's the nature of our family foundation, that's the nature of our our spiritual family's foundation, it must be 
the continued nature of its operation. So would you pray with me? Worship team. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you have made us a family. That you have taken those who corrupted your your image, who rebelled against you, who hated and despised those things that you said were good. We thank you that you have taken those people and you have quelled their rebellion and not just made them servants in your household, but made them sons and daughters by your grace. Help us to understand that, Lord. Help us to see the significance of that. Help us to develop a broader vision of who is our family here in this church. Help us to develop a deeper vision of what family means. And Lord God, help us model always to one another this ethic of forgiveness that keeps a church healthy. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is not a member of your family, whether they are uh, new or have been attending for their whole life and they realize today that they're not a member of of your family, we pray, Lord God, that they would call out to you in faith and receive the gift that you have that you have freely offered in Christ. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.